Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. First-time biographer Stephen Heyman made the decision to write a biography of Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist and pioneering agrarian Louis Bromfield over a bowl of lamb stew he enjoyed on a visit to Bromfield's farm. Bromfield had died in 1956 and he'd fallen into obscurity, in part because of his work on the land. I talked with Heyman via Zoom on March 10th about how he resurrected him in his book, The Planter of Modern Life, Lewis Bromfield and the Seeds of a Food Revolution, which was published by Norton in April 2020 and is long-listed for Bio's Plutarch Prize. Winning a fellowship to the Leon Levy Center for Biography allowed Heyman to complete the work. I mean, I think that biographers come at their subjects from different angles and with a different set of like expertise. In my case, I had like zero expertise in the two disciplines that were involved in my subject. So I wrote about a guy who started out as a, as a, uh, like a Pulitzer Prize winning lost generation novelist. And he lived in France between the wars, but then he like moves back to rural Ohio where he was from and begins a, 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 a pretty big serious farm and decides that he wants his life to be about pioneering you know, new more ecologically uh, responsible techniques in agriculture. So you know I, I didn't know anything really I mean I had a uh, I, I knew a little bit about literature because I love to read and I knew uh, more and more about food because I had become more interested in it, but like I didn't have any experience farming and I wasn't a literary scholar. And I happened to pick a guy who um, not much had been written about him in the last couple of generations. So there was a sense of like, who am I to tell this story? Go back to that lamb stew that turned you on to him that I read about in your acknowledgments. Because I wondered how did you how did you find this fabulous character about whom I had never heard? What so step back before you even got to that, how do I who am I to do this? How did you even right. decide this guy is somebody I'm whose life I'm gonna inhabit for a while? And yeah. whose story needs to be told. Well, I like I also had never heard of him but the distance between finding out who he was and deciding I wanted to write a book was actually very small I I, I had I had moved to Pittsburgh in 2015 my, my wife went to uh, went there for grad school um, in a new place and I'm a, a journalist and I was like maybe I could do a travel story about this area of western Pennsylvania so I, I was trying to kind of cobble something together and there was a farm that was kind of famous among foodies. Um, and uh, it was run by this couple um, and they started in the 1970s and they were considered to be kind of early adopters of sustainable agriculture. And um, I was talking to the guy and he mentioned that there was this person, Lewis Bromfield, who was very influential to him when he was just starting out. And I had never heard of him and I Googled him and I just kind of discovered this, 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 this 
fascinating world because it wasn't only that Bromfield had, you know, kind of um, been one of the first people to popularize the idea of organic agriculture in the United States. Uh, he had this earlier extraordinarily successful career as a novelist. And there was something about the shape of this story that it had combined things that don't normally go together. You know, that it, had, that it was, it had one foot in France and another in rural Ohio, that it was, you know, about literature and about agriculture. I was wondering how these things could connect in the story of one man's life. Um, so I just fell in love with the shape of it, even before I, I knew anything about it. And then I said, I, I, then I had to kind of like figure it out. But that process of figuring out because of the lack of expertise that I was talking about uh, before involved a lot of like self-doubt and moments and sleepless nights and, and, and worry. Ultimately, I, I kind of realized, you know, he interests me and that is, is why I, I, I persisted. That, you know, I needed to stop worrying about whether he was of interest to some nameless, faceless tribunal of, 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 of critics and literary experts and agronomists mm -hmm. and realize that like this guy as a human being, his story is fascinating to me. Now I can proceed and just kind of figure out why. And so how, once you did made that decision, how did you go about finding the forensic evidence that you needed? I mean, this is a, like you say, it's a wide swath of, it's not just like, let's go to Pittsburgh and immerse myself in somebody's yeah. history there. How, so how did you go about, walk us through that? Well, I was really lucky because Bromfield's farm Malabar, which is in Richland County, Ohio, is now a state park. Um, it's, it's beautifully preserved. You can go and visit his massive Greek revival farmhouse and see the beds where Lauren Bacall and Humphrey Bogart slept, uh, you know, um, on their wedding night. Um, the fields are still there, you know, they still grow crops. Um, at Ohio State are all of Bromfield's papers. When I started the, the, the research, his daughter was still living. Um, she was a wonderful source. There was a tremendous amount of written material. He had written newspaper columns and agricultural memoirs. It was as though like uh, this enchanted path opened up for me. There was so much, there was too much as is often the case with a biography. Um, and, and then it just made, became a about, you know, a process of, of kind of hoovering up all this material um, figuring out what was uh, of interest, uh, sequencing it into a, uh, you know, in, 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 into a narrative that would introduce him and get people excited about him, make him seem like he was worth spending time with. Um, that was the difficult part, you know, telling, telling somebody who clear, clearly has never heard of, of this guy, you know, you should pay attention. The story is, it, it, you know, it, it is interesting. Um, kind of like infecting the reader with my enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the, the the magic of it, and that's hard to do. You wake up one day and you're like, "Is this any? Is this any good? You know, am I wasting my time? <laughs> should, uh, does 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 the thing that I've been toiling over for so long have any actual value to anyone except except for myself?" Right. 
And how is it differently hard to do it in this case than it is when you were writing journalism? Can you articulate that? I, I, I don't know. Because um, it is different. I feel very conscious of the form with journalism and the fact that like, you know, there's a news peg, there's a, you know, this, this story is, is, is one of many articles in a digest in a magazine. Uh, it's coming out now for a certain reason. I don't want to say that there's a disposable quality to it because that, uh, first of all, that's true of books too. And second of all, there's journalism that obviously endures. Uh, nevertheless, I felt like I was building something while writing this book in a way that I didn't feel when I when I do my stories. And maybe because I'm a, as a journalist, I've been kind of a generalist. I often feel like there's this just kind of grab bag of topics that I that, I, that I've written about that didn't have any kind of like I don't know. I'm sure if some kind of brilliant psychoanalysis type person could go back and kind of figure out why I, I was attracted to the stories that I was attracted to, but I, I felt like I had a relationship with, with this story and this guy that was completely different from any of the, the topics I've pursued before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and with this volume, these volumes of material that you say you hoovered up, how did you find yourself sorting through it? And over what period of time did that happen with the fellowship that you got? And, and I, I believe you got some grants as well. So first you had to write the book proposal. You had to write these proposals for fellowships, grants, and maybe help us describe, since this is mostly for people who like us write biography or want to, how you attacked all that information. Because that can be super overwhelming. Yeah. I mean, I did a kind of, the first... There was this. There was a kind of like intelligence gathering period to the story. So I, I heard Bromfield's name. I was attracted by the the kind of like overall shape of the story. I thought there could be a book here. Let me go to Ohio, see what the sources are like, see what's been written about him in the past. You know, dig into this a little bit. And I and I did an initial amount of research that allowed me to write a proposal. I had no idea that, you know, whether it would really interest anyone. I met with a series of agents, um, you know, most of them were really generous with their time and very encouraging. I remember speaking to one agent who said that I needed to decide, I needed to make a decision about whether to favor the agricultural side of Bromfield's legacy or the literary side, hmm. um, because there were essentially two different readers and two different ways of marketing the book. I was very resistant to that because I was kind of, I was, I wanted to tell the whole story. I, you know, I saw them as the story, those, those things as connected, even though ultimately I argue in the book that his environmental or agricultural legacy is more important. I thought you couldn't do one without the other. Mm -hmm. so I eventually found, uh, a uh, team of agents, a, a husband and wife team, Amy and Peter Bernstein, who are wonderful. Um, and they were believed in the project and we managed to sell it to uh, Norton. Mm -hmm. And I, yeah, I applied for two, I was really lucky with this book. I got two um, great uh, fellowship grants um, and uh, that enabled me to take the time necessary to do all the research. 
I need, now I need to, to read everything, structure this, go through all the material. And that was the greatest pleasure of my life. I mean, I think that there's a certain type of person who's just, who just thrives in the archives. And I, and I did, had no idea that this was going to be me, but I, time flew by. It was so exciting. I felt like I was, um, you know, the hero of some detective story. I mean, it's, it's kind of lame, but <laughs> to me, it was, it, it was the most exciting thing in the world. And every small discovery felt like such a victory. And I was amazed at the way this process literally like brought the past to, 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 to the present, like, like dynamized it in, in, in some way. All of a sudden things that had happened, small little events from, uh, you know, a half a century ago or more had, had weight and significance in my own life. It was just amazing to me. Mm. Um, so it was, it was a great, the research was a great pleasure. The writing less so. <laughs> 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 yes, that's what you that's that's what you have to do once you spend all that time doing all that research to get it right. out there. But it is so exciting to imagine you sitting there reading. I mean, because you know the story roughly before you go into the archive, roughly, and then yes. things emerge, like you say, that um, give it more shape and importance. And it, it is such an incredible thing that this man, if you can maybe talk for a minute, was. We think of organic and um, as such a modern concept, but it really wasn't, right? I mean, how his influence was deep or long-standing. Yeah, I mean, he was onto things that later became extremely important, commonplace, you know, kind of like a feature of our daily consumer lives. I think that the the label organic has, you know, almost become a kind of marketing term. Some of the original ideas behind it are where the real kind of value might be as part of solving some of our big environmental problems in our relationship with food. But what was interesting to me is that like this whole uh agricultural environmental weight awakening happened in in a very kind of like rarefied literary atmosphere you know bromfield was living in 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 france in the 30s hanging out with people like edith wharton gertrude stein and he had this really impressive garden and he would host these um these weekend parties and attract they attracted all kinds of people and you know the whether it was like a fashion designer or a novelist or, or uh, you know, a politician or an aristocrat, people didn't really know what to make, make like they, they couldn't really make sense of Bromfield because on the one hand, he was trafficking in this kind of elite world, but then he seemed to be like so super excited about, you know, compost and his garden <laughs> and, you know, gro <laughs> growing vegetables and hanging out with his peasant neighbors. And, and, and they taught him about the land. And he was amazed to see how in France, the same ground that had been cultivated for generations was seemingly more fertile than ever before. When in America, in the Midwest, in the places where he was from, you know, a farmer could exhaust rich virgin soil in the space of a few generations. So there's like, there's something wrong, he realized. And, this, and he was realized this in the, in the 1930s, you know, at the time of the depression and the Dust Bowl and things like that. But there's something wrong with America's 
relationship with with the land and 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 and, and the way we cultivate our food and that there's still something wrong with our relationship with mm-hmm. the land and you know so obviously <laughs> that fact you know the fa- the 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 the, the problems that Bromfield saw in his own time and that he was able to articulate so powerfully are still with us. So that was my argument for why this writer, as opposed to all the other writers, because there are a lot of them who were once famous and are not now and now not, but this guy is worthy of our kind of reassessment. I guess what I love about this story is that he's somebody who had twin passions and sort of later in his life, the, the one of those passions prevailed and maybe that influenced why we aren't as aware of him as a writer or maybe aware of him at all because he sort of subjugated the thing that would have made him endure a la Gertrude Stein versus, yeah. is, is that fair to say from? I think so. I mean, I think that, you know, his literary fortunes were already kind of falling by the time he started in, in agriculture. Um, you know, in the twenties, he was, the, to- the New York Times called him the most promising of all the young American novelists. And uh, he won the Pulitzer in 1926. But by the 1940s, critics like Edmund Wilson and Malcolm Cowley thought that he was a joke, you know, and they couldn't believe uh, that critics two decades earlier had put him in the same league as Hemingway. Um, So that in itself is kind of like a fascinating story of how literary tastes and critical opinion can change so much. But, you know, Bromfield after the Great Depression, after the Dust Bowl, you know, with World War II starting, you know, art for art's sake, literature, he had had, kind of experienced this great environmental awakening and and, and art for art's sake, literature just, it it didn't interest him anymore. And he he ended up writing stories which were very popular and sold, you know, millions of of books and, and were adapted by Hollywood, but he thought of them as a way of financing his dream farm in Ohio and the and the environmental crusade that he was on, so um, he gave up the dream of of of, of being a great artist um, as a you know as a novelist. But what I argue in the book is that there is something creative or even artistic about the way he conceived of these landscapes he created mm-hmm. and the way he he wrote and thought about farming and ultimately my goal is for these things which seem so disparate at the beginning to kind of merge at the end and for you to see him really seeking the same thing throughout his life um you know i don't know what to call it like the yeah, the search for a sustainable life in unsustainable times, you know, like uh, or some some sense of meaning or value of what he's doing, and 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 he becomes much more uh, an artist of of, of landscape and uh, agriculture than of uh, literature. So, yeah. How how did this immerse immersive process of of researching and writing this book? How do you think it's changed? you and how did inhabiting this person's these this person's worlds um how is it going to 
change what you or, or inform what you do next? Those are two b- pretty broad questions. <laughs> yeah. Well, the first one, I have no idea. I mean, the book, the the process happened. It, it ended up taking years, but it felt quick in a way because there was one big new challenge after another. And I kind of wasn't really stopping to think to reflect and think about how this was changing me while it was happening. Sure. It just so happens that the book has come out like at a crazy point in my life. Like uh, my wife and I had our first son born the same month that the book came out. Uh, <laughs> so, and then of course that this was April of 2020. So there were other things happening in the world that were complicating uh, life on yes. earth. <laughs> yes. Um, so it's, it's, uh, I haven't really had a chance to stop and think about it. I, but I do know that, that I've fallen hard for biography. I mean, there is something, oh, there's a weird process of self-expansion that happens when you're working, when you're, when you're reading a biography, I feel. Um, uh, you can't help but wonder about yourself. Um, and think about how you would have dealt with some of these challenges and what you can and cannot relate to in the subject. All that happens, like you don't, you don't, you don't need to make that explicit. That, I think that process happens naturally, um, but it's one of the most interesting things I think about reading a biography. That's Stephen Heyman, author of The Planter of Modern Life, Lewis Bromfield and the Seeds of a Food Revolution. I talked with him via Zoom. You can hear more interviews and learn more about bio on our website at biographersinternational.org. Enzo De Palma created our theme music. Cherie Newman is our podcast editor. I'm Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles. Thanks for listening to Bio. Bio.